you have your Bibles with you, I invite you to turn with me one more time to the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 23. If you're a guest, we've been studying through the Gospel of Matthew, and if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1052. While you're finding your place there, I realize I missed one other introduction, and so Jeremiah, would uh, you stand and introduce your son to us as well? Matthew chapter 23, we'll begin in verse 1, and I want to speak for a few minutes on this subject, practice what you preach. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, and this is what the Word of God says. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you. But not the works they do, for they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others, for they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast and the best seats in the synagogues, and greetings in the marketplaces, and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant, And whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Matthew chapter 23 records Jesus' final public sermon. It is a scathing rebuke of false religion that was promoted as the truth. This chapter has been referred to as the most devastating chapter in all four Gospels. In it, Jesus exposes and denounces the religious hierarchy of the day, the scribes and the Pharisees, by pronouncing seven woes on them in some of the strongest language to ever come from his lips. But why does Jesus use his last public sermon to pronounce these woes instead of proclaiming salvation or resurrection, or kingdom living? The answer, because of the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. Hypocrisy is a major theme in the Gospel of Matthew, with words relating to hypocrisy appearing 14 times throughout the book, half of which occur here in chapter 23. The word hypocrite comes from the Greek word for an actor's mask. It refers to someone who is play-acting, someone who is duplicitous, someone who is not real. And according to Jesus, this is exactly what the scribes and the Pharisees were doing. They were play-acting. They were proclaiming what they did not practice. Matthew Henry, the great Puritan preacher and author of the magnificent six-volume commentary on the whole Bible, poignantly describes the problem with hypocritical preachers. And this is what he wrote. When in the pulpit, they preach so well that it is a pity they should ever come out. But when out of the pulpit, they live so ill that it is a pity that they should ever go back in. Hypocrisy among the religious elite. And in this text, Jesus denounced the scribes and the Pharisees, the most highly regarded religious leaders of their day. And he calls them, as you study the chapter, hypocrites, sons of hell, blind guides, 
fools, robbers, self-indulgent, whitewashed tombs, snakes, vipers, persecutors, and murderers. The scribes and the Pharisees genuinely believed that they were doing God's work, that they were obeying God's word, and they were accomplishing God's will. And yet, despite their sincerity, they were deceived. And as a result, they experienced the most severe pronouncements of damnation that Jesus Christ ever uttered. But friends, these warnings do not just apply to the scribes and the Pharisees or to religious leaders in general. They apply to anyone who professes Christ. For it is possible to believe. It is possible to preach what we do not practice and deceive ourselves just as the scribes and the Pharisees deceived themselves. And in light of this reality, Jesus not only exposes the danger of hypocrisy, he gives the cure, teaching us the importance of practicing what we preach. So would you notice with me, first of all, in verses 1 through 3, the example of hypocrisy. Matthew records, Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach, but they do not practice. After silencing the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 22 and verse 46, Jesus, in verse 1, turns his attention to the crowds and to his disciples. And then in verses 2 and 3, Jesus uses the scribes and the Pharisees as an example of hypocrisy. Historians tell us there were approximately 6,000 Pharisees in Jesus' day most of whom were sincere in their quest for truth and holiness. They were known for their separation, not only from the Gentiles, but also from those Jews who did not practice the law who, or who stood in opposition to their traditions that governed their lives. And over the years, historians tell us the scribes also became responsible for copying, preserving, interpreting, and teaching God's law. And because the scribes were most commonly associated with the Pharisees, Jesus holds these two groups of religious leaders up as an example of hypocrisy, saying in verse 2, they sit on Moses' seat. Now, if you're using the New American Standard translation of the Bible, you will find different wording in that translation that cuts more accurately to the heart of what Jesus is actually saying in verse 2. The New American Standard Bible translates verse 2 this way. The scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. They've seated themselves in a position of authority. The word chair is where we get our English word cathedral, which originally referred to a place or a seat of ecclesiastical authority. The same idea is found today in our higher education institutions with such expressions of the chair of philosophy or the chair of history, which refer to most esteemed positions of authority and teaching. And for the Jews... Moses was the supreme lawgiver, the supreme spokesman for God. Therefore, to sit in the chair of Moses was to sit in God's seat of authority as his spokesman. And this was the very claim that the scribes and the Pharisees were making for themselves. Now, it's important to note at this point in the text that the scribes and the Pharisees were never given this position by God to sit on Moses' seat. They, as the New American Standard Bible says, put themselves in the chair of Moses. And they claimed that authority for themselves, an authority that was never theirs to claim. 
And that's why their teaching never affected the masses the way Jesus' teaching did. The crowds, as Matthew chapter 7 tells us, saw that Jesus taught with a genuine authority. An authority that none of the other religious leaders of that day possessed. And this was just one of the many reasons why the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees hated Jesus and wanted to destroy him. Now in verse 3, Jesus tells the crowds and his disciples that because the scribes and the Pharisees occupy Moses' seat, they should do and observe whatever they tell you. Now look at your Bible carefully. Jesus told them to do and observe whatever these religious leaders told them to do and observe. The word do is an imperative. It demands an immediate response. The word observe is also an imperative, and it's in the present tense, and it carries the idea of continuing action. So Jesus was saying to the crowds and his disciples, immediately obey and keep on obeying whatever the scribes and the Pharisees tell you to do. Listen, that is in accordance with the law and the prophets. Take seriously what they teach you and tell you to do and observe in as much as it is in agreement with the scriptures, with the word of God. But notice what else he says to them. But do not do and observe the works that they do. Why would he say that? Well, he gives us the answer at the end of verse 3. He says, because they preach... But they do not practice. And friends, Jesus is teaching us that to preach one thing and to practice another thing is the height of hypocrisy. It is hypocritical inconsistency as one author described it. And Jesus, as you'll see later in the chapter describes in full detail what hypocrisy looks like in someone's life. And in particular, what hypocrisy looks like in the lives of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look in Matthew chapter 23, verses 25 to 28, just a few verses down from where we are. And this is what Jesus says to them. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside... They're full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Hypocritical inconsistency. Preaching what you do not practice. And you'll notice in that example and in that description, friends, that Jesus repeatedly brings them back to a contrast. A contrast between what is going on in the outside of your life that everyone can see and what is going on in the inside of your life that only God can see. And that is where hypocrisy lives. It lives inside in the dark places where nobody can see but God and maybe those who are close to you who live under the same roof with you. Practicing what you do not preach. So what about you? Is there consistency between what you say and how you live? Is there consistency in your parenting between what you tell your kids and how they see you live? 
Is there consistency in your profession when you go to work? When people you work with know that you've just been to church? And does it affect the way you work, the things you say, the things that you talk about, the things you entertain in the workplace? Is there consistency between what you say and how you live on campus as a student? Is there consistency between what you say about marriage and how you conduct yourself in your marriage? Is there consistency in your friendships between what you tell people you're in relationship with and how you respond to them? Practicing what you preach. And it's not just for the lay people. After all, this context is within the religious hierarchy of Jesus' day. And so the question has to be asked, if you are a leader in the church, would those who know you best say that you are the same in private that you are in public? Would those in leadership say that you are loved both for your ministry and for your character? Do you practice what you preach? And my friends, I would tell you that it's a very humbling thing to think about if you take the Word of God seriously. And if you exposit the Word of God verse by verse, you come to things on a weekly, monthly basis that you know you are not fully living And yet you are required to stand and teach and preach the full authority of the Word of God. And so what do you do with that? You get on your knees and you humble yourself before the Word of God and you confess your sin. And you beg for God to forgive you and cleanse you and empower you and help you to live what you're proclaiming. And if the preacher is to do that on a weekly basis, shouldn't we all? Shouldn't we all do that in regards to our marriage, in our parenting, in our work, in our friendships, in our relationships? Do we practice what we preach? When we not only see the example of hypocrisy, we also see the exposure of hypocrisy in verses 4 to 7. Look carefully at what Jesus says. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear, And lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feast. And the best seats in the synagogues. And greetings in the marketplaces. And being called rabbi by others. Now notice what Jesus does in verses 4 to 7. He exposes the characteristics of the hypocrisy of the scribes and the Pharisees. And two phrases jump out of these verses that describe their hypocrisy. In verse 5, Jesus says, do you see the phrase? They do these things. And then in verse 6, he says, they love these things. And that's where hypocrisy is rooted, friends. It's rooted in what you do, and it's rooted in what you love. And so Jesus identifies the first characteristic of their hypocrisy in verse 4, saying that they place heavy burdens on others. And so instead of helping those under their leadership with their burdens, the scribes and the Pharisees actually add to the hardship of others, Jesus says, by tying up heavy burdens hard to bear and laying them on people's shoulders. Now, the picture of G- that Jesus gives here reflects the common custom of the day and of people in many underdeveloped countries around the world today. It is a picture of an owner taking his animal and loading as many goods and supplies and burdens on that animal as he possibly can and walking the animal through the mountains and through the roads. And as they're traveling through the mountains and the roads, the animal is burdened down with this unbelievable load 
that it's being forced to carry while the owner is walking freely with no burdens beside him. And not only is he walking freely with no burdens, he gets irritated and agitated at his animal if the animal slows down and does not listen to his instructions and cooperate. And this is the picture that Jesus is describing of the scribes and the Pharisees. They piled up heavy loads of religious rules and regulations and rituals on the people's shoulders, burdens that were unbearable and impossible to carry. And then when the people failed to follow all of these burdens and rules and regulations, they were rebuked by these religious leaders and imposed guilt on them by these religious leaders. And notice what the text says in verse number four. They were burdens that the scribes and the Pharisees themselves were not willing to move even with their finger. The picture is they, they were not even willing to attempt to practice what they were putting on other people. These religious leaders had no interest in God's grace, no interest in His forgiveness, no interest in His mercy, because those provisions made no allowance for human effort and merit and good works. And they were offended that Jesus taught the exact opposite. Do you know what these religious leaders did? They made the worship of God a drudgery instead of a delight. They demanded discipline and perfection from others while they extended grace to themselves. And they made it, listen, they made it difficult for people to come to God. And this is the exact opposite way that Jesus dealt with people. It's how we began our worship service this morning. With Jesus' invitation of Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 to 30. And you have verse 4 right there in your Bible in front of you in your lap. And compare verse 4 to Jesus' invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you'll find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The exact opposite of what verse 4 says that these religious leaders did. And friends, in the context of Matthew chapter 11, this invitation that Jesus gave, contrary to popular teaching and belief today, was not just for the weary and the worn who are tired of life. It was in the context of the weary and the worn who are burdened and tired of carrying their sin. It was an invitation to come to Jesus Christ for salvation. To come to experience the forgiveness of God. And the mercy of God. And the grace of God. And the healing that only God can bring to a person's burdened, battered soul. Because of sin. It's an invitation that could only come through Jesus Christ, the one who died for the sins of the world, the one who took your sin upon his shoulders so you could take the gentleness and the lowliness of his burden upon yours, the one who experienced darkness so you could experience his light. The one who experienced wrath in your place so you could experience his love. This Jesus says to you and to me and to everyone who is burdened with their sin. Everyone who is burdened with their failure. Everyone who is burdened and weary and weighed down. Come to me. And the invitation that he offered 2,000 years ago, he is offering this very moment this morning. Come to Jesus. As I was studying this passage, a commentator gave me a thought that it hadn't even occurred to me. Charles Price, in his commentary on Matthew, he says that there should be a second invitation that Jesus gives beside of the invitation in Matthew 11. 
we should give the invitation of John 15. And this is what Jesus says in John 15, verses 4 and 5. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. He went on to say that these two invitations from Jesus encompass the whole Christian life. That the Christian life begins with the invitation to come to Jesus. And the Christian life continues and ends with the invitation from Jesus to abide in him. Come to him and take the burdens of your sins and place them upon Jesus and receive the gentleness and the lowliness of his yoke and his burden and come to him in salvation and forgiveness and redemption and be restored to your creator. And then once you've come to him, abide in him, remain in him. When you wake up tomorrow, abide in him, depend upon him, remain in him. Because as you abide in him, he helps you live the Christian life. For as Jesus says in this invitation, apart from me, you can do nothing. And don't you see, that's why Jesus' teaching was so different from all the others. He didn't just deal with their sin. He dealt with their life. Come to me. Abide in me. This is the true gospel, friends. And if you're believing anything other than coming to Jesus and abiding in Jesus, you are not believing the true gospel. And it's why you're burdened. It's why you're worn out. Thinking that all of your effort makes you more acceptable and more pleasing to God. When the true gospel says that when you are in God's son, the Lord Jesus Christ, you couldn't be more loved. You couldn't be more accepted. You couldn't be more forgiven than what you are in Jesus Christ. Come to me. Abide in me. In verse 5, Jesus gives a second characteristic saying that they lived for the applause of men. He says that the motivation behind the scribes and the Pharisees' good deeds was their desire, look at the text, to be seen by others. And to illustrate his point, Jesus made reference to two ways the hypocritical leaders displayed their godliness, through tassels and through phylacteries. Four times in the Pentateuch, in Exodus and Deuteronomy, The Lord commanded that his law was to be upon the heads and the foreheads as his people, of his people, as a reminder of him. And the ancient Jews understood that command as it was given, not to be taken literally, but as a symbol symbol of God's law being the controlling factor in their lives, that it should control what they did, represented by their hands, and it should control what they thought and believed, represented by their forehead. That both their thoughts and their actions were directed by God's word. But as the centuries passed, many Jews came to look on this teaching not as a means of making God's word dominant in their lives, but of making themselves and their piety dominant in the eyes of those around them. And so they externalized these commands from Exodus and Deuteronomy. And they made phylacteries. And these phylacteries were small square boxes made of leather from ceremonially clinging animals. And after being dyed black, the leather was sewn into a box using 12 stitches representing all of the tribes of Israel. And placed into each phylactery were copies of Exodus 13 and Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 11. And the phylactery worn on the head had four compartments, each containing one of the texts on a small piece of parchment. And the phylactery worn on the hand contained a single piece of parchment on which all four texts were written. The Hebrew letter for Y was inscribed on both sides of the box worn on the head. The head strap was 
strap was tied to form the letter D and the hand strap to form the letter J. And these three letters together form the name for God, Shaddai, usually translated God Almighty. Then they took long leather straps to bind one box on the forehead and one on the arm and left hand because the left side was considered to be closer to the heart. This is the extent that they went to make these commands external so everyone can see. And as time passed on, this word for phylactery was used to describe a protection or a safeguard. And in the cults of the day, they took ornaments and symbols and they trusted in those ornaments and symbols because they believed they were a safeguard and they would protect them. And some of these religious leaders treated the phylacteries like that. That they were safeguards and they were protections for their holiness and for their piety. They were good luck charms, if you will. And rather than just wearing these at prayer time, they wore them all the time. And notice what the text says. They did it so they could be seen by others. They took tassels and they put them on all of their garments in response to Moses' instructions from God in Numbers chapter 15, verses 38 to 40. But you'll notice what Jesus says in the text. They didn't just use phylacteries and they didn't just put tassels on their garments. Look at what he says. They made the phylacteries broad. They made them big so everybody could notice. And they made the fringes long. And they made the phylacteries big and the fringes long as symbols of a greater devotion to God so that when the common people of the day would look at them and see these broad phylacteries full of the Word of God governing their thoughts and their actions, people would look at them and say, Oh, they are super spiritual. They are holy. They are godly. And when they looked at their garments and they saw all the tassels, they were in envy of these religious leaders. And the purpose... Behind the phylacteries, the purpose behind the tassels was all lost. It was meant to remind people of the word of God and that they were set apart as the people of God. And the scribes and the Pharisees used them to draw people's attention to themselves and away from God. So they would actually forget about God and trust in them. And do you know, friends, that when you study Matthew chapter 23, you find that there are great parallels to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and in particular in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus described hypocrisy in Matthew chapter 6 this way, that people announce their giving to the needy with trumpets that they may be praised by others that they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, that they may be seen by others, that they disfigure their faces and look gloomy so that their fasting may be seen by others. And this is what the religion of the day under the scribes and the Pharisees had come to, a religion of outward show and a religion of complete death internally. And the only time the scribes and the Pharisees did the religious show outwardly was when people were looking at them. Now notice finally in verses 6 and 7 that Jesus gives a third characteristic saying that they were consumed with their position and their titles. He says that the scribes and the Pharisees loved the place of honor beside the host at feasts. They loved the best seats in the synagogues where everyone could see their piety. And they loved the use of fancy titles when they were greeted in the marketplaces. They loved these things. They desired these things. They wallowed in these things. They couldn't get enough of them. 
One commentator said, The measure in which we need others to see and approve our walk with God is the measure of its unreality. Oh, you might have missed that this morning. You might have missed it in all of the background of the text to properly understand what's happening. Listen to it again. The measure in which we need others to see and approve our walk with God is the measure of the unreality of our walk with God. That when Jesus called out the hypocrisy in his sermon on the mount, he not only called it out, but then he gave the antidote. And every time he said they did this to be seen by others, he turned right around and said, you do it in secret. And your Father who sees it in secret will reward you. That is true spiritual living. True spirituality, friends, is concerned with God. And it finds its security in an intimacy with God that requires no human approval. That what I am in private, with my Bible open, before God, is more important than what I am standing here right now. That is true reality. And listen, if that's not real, this won't be real. And if you're not real in private, you won't be real in public. You can put on a good show that your marriage is right. But your spouse knows that they're living with the devil in private. You can put on a good show in your parenting, wanting everyone to think that you're the best parent. But you can't fool your kids. They know how you treat them, how you talk to them, what you do with them in private. You can act a certain way here and go to work and be a totally different person. So much so that if you invited one of your co-workers to work, they might actually say to you, you go to church? And they would be surprised. This is the reality that Jesus is showing us. So we have to ask ourselves, do we do what the scribes and the Pharisees do? Do we put burdens on people that God never meant for them to bear? Do we demand perfection from our kids so we won't be embarrassed by them? Do we love what the scribes and Pharisees love? The titles. The honor. The best seats. To be seen. To be noticed. Or friends, are we content with intimacy with God? Are we content with the approval of God? Are we content living in obscurity with God? That's the question. When we not only see the example of hypocrisy and the exposure of hypocrisy, finally, we see the exaltation of humility. Look in verses 8 to 12. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. And the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. In these verses, a transition takes place. Jesus directly addresses the crowds and the disciples. 
And he warns them not to adopt the practices of the scribes and the Pharisees that we've just walked through in verses 4 through 7. And Jesus forbids them in verse number 8 to use the title rabbi because, as he says, they only have one teacher and they are all brothers. And there's only one teacher. And that teacher is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the truth. And so he is sovereign over all truth. It means, friends, that there's no original content. That you should never come to church and think, I wonder if the pastor's got something new for us today. No, if you ever come to church and someone stands up and says, I've got something new for you today, get them out of there. If it's new, it's not true. No, you come to the old paths. You come to the well-worn paths of the Word of God. That no one is at liberty to have their own angle or their own emphasis or their own interpretation. That true teaching leaves the teacher dispensable and Christ indispensable. It's not about the teacher. It's about Christ. And so don't be called rabbi. Moreover, Jesus forbids in verse 9... To use the title Father. And would you look carefully at your Bible? This is helpful in our context. Because they have one Father who is in heaven. And Jesus is teaching them that the title of Father in a spiritual sense is to be reserved for God and God alone. Because God alone is the source of all spiritual life and blessing. It means no priest. No pastor, no evangelist, no religious leader of any kind can impart spiritual life to someone else. Only God can do that. And to call any religious leader father is to impart the honor and the glory that is reserved for God alone to a human being. And it is a clear violation of the word of God. And you should never do it. Not even out of respect. It's wrong. That's God's title. No human being gets that title. He is the father of everyone who has been born again. Furthermore, in verse 10, Jesus forbids them to use the title instructor as one who guides and leads and goes before someone. Why? Because there's only one true shepherd, the Lord Jesus Christ. J.C. Ryle, in his work, Expository Thoughts on Matthew, says this about Jesus' instructions here. Let us never forget these things. Such cautions are always useful. Human nature would always rather lean on a visible minister than an invisible Christ. It's our human nature to lean on something other than Christ. You know, the Apostle Paul told the Thessalonian believers that those who faithfully proclaim the word of God should be appreciated and loved and highly esteemed by those they serve. It's true. It's a principle in the word of God. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13. You can check me on that if you like. But human leaders are not to seek honor. And they're not to seek glory. They're to remember that they're neither the source of truth, which is God's word, nor are they the illumination of truth, which is God's spirit. They're bond slaves. They're servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And God has put spiritual leaders in the church and in our lives. But they're never meant to replace the triune God. We're here to help, we're here to serve, we're here to equip, we're here to care, we're here to love, we're here to feed, but we're to point you to the triune God, not take his place. And that's what Jesus is telling them. 
Now, after giving this threefold warning in verses 8 to 10, he reminds the crowds and his disciples in verse 11 that true greatness is found in serving and not being served. Listen, friends, true godly leaders do not seek elevated titles and positions. They don't seek private jets. They seek lowly service for the name of Christ and for the sake of his kingdom. And this is what Jesus will illustrate very shortly just before he goes to the cross. And John chapter 13 describes it where Jesus got up from the table where he was preparing to eat with his disciples. And the Bible says he girded himself with a towel and he bent down and he got a basin and he washed all of their feet as an example of true leadership. True greatness in the kingdom of God is not about how many titles you have before or after your name. It's not about how many positions and placements that you have. True greatness in the kingdom of God, Jesus says to his disciples and to you and me, is service. Do you want to know? Do you want to know if you're truly great in the kingdom? Here's the answer. Do you have a towel? Do you have a basin? Because those who exalt themselves, Jesus says, do you see it in verse 12? They'll be humbled. And those who humble themselves will be exalted. John Maxwell used to say it this way. Nobody cares how much you know until they know how much you care. A towel in a basin. Does that describe your life? A towel in a basin? You know, men, your marriage might be different if you put a towel on and grabbed a basin and served your wife that way. Your relationships might be different if you sought to serve instead of being served. A towel and a basin. James warned in James chapter 4, verses 6 through 10, That God resists the proud and he gives grace to the humble. And I'm telling you this morning, you want to find yourself in opposition to God? Be proud. Demand your rights. Demand your titles. Demand your correctness. Make everyone bow to you. It is a perfect way to find yourself in opposition To your creator. You want to experience his grace? Humble yourself and admit your nothingness before him. And don't miss it. Don't miss it. Do you know what Jesus is really teaching in verses 8 through 12? Humility is the cure for hypocrisy. You want to keep from being a hypocrite? Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and he will lift you up. Humility is the cure for hypocrisy. Jesus makes it clear that the root of hypocrisy and the root of all sin is pride, and the antidote to it all is humility. So may I ask you, friend, in closing, Does your heart delight in receiving honor at the expense of other people? Do you find comfort and joy whenever you realize that you're in a better and higher position than someone else? Are you prone, even in your own mind, to exalt yourself above others? Do you compare yourself with other people Subconsciously measuring yourself against them to discern if you're more spiritual than they are. Do you humbly serve others or do you only think of yourself? Do you look for opportunities to serve others? Are the marks of your life and ministry 
a basin, and a towel. Years ago, I had an encounter with a man named Robert. Robert was a great guy, likable by everybody. And his daughter got very sick, and she was in the hospital. And I went to see his daughter. And Robert happened to be there. And so I was visiting with his daughter and praying with her. He struck up a conversation with me. And he began to tell me how he went all over town telling everybody how they should come to church and how they should do this and how they should do that. Like to listen to Robert talk in that moment, you would have thought that Robert was the greatest evangelist next to George Whitfield. He was that good. But there was only one problem with Robert. Robert never went to church. Robert never read his Bible. Robert never did the things that he was telling everyone and encouraging everyone else to do. And so after I listened to all of this speech and him thinking he was impressing me, I looked at him and I said, Robert, do you know what you are? You're a hypocrite. You go all around town telling everybody everything they should do, and you never do one thing. You've missed the whole point. What would happen if somebody you invited to church actually came to church and you weren't there? Well, he had never thought of that. He had never thought of that. Do you know what happened to Robert? Robert began coming to church. And God convicted him of his sin. And God radically saved him. And do you know what Robert did? Robert went back out in the community and kept inviting people to church. But do you know what happened? There was a difference. Because Robert was different. And the people he invited to church, they saw the difference in Robert. And now what Robert said matched what he did. And it matched who he was. And Robert had a lot of influence with people. He eventually became a deacon in that church. Practicing what you preach. Friends, that's where the power is. That's where the power is through the Spirit of God. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. And even in a passage like this, you use it to shape us and change us and conform us to the image of your son. And I thank you for that. And I just pray today, God, that you would take your word through the power of your spirit and you'd bring application to our lives. I pray that you would equip us and that you would build your church and build your people. And I pray today for those who are here without Christ. That they would see and hear your invitation to come to them. And that they would come. Thank you for your faithfulness to us and for your word. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.